0: Peace, it is the state of tranquility that we enjoy when our nation is free from every civil disturbance. Peace is also the state of security that occurs within a community when those who enforce the law are properly punishing criminals. And while I have no doubt that we would all love to live a peaceful life, which is free from turmoil and trouble, the fact is we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world which oftentimes is not very peaceful. Yeah, I know we're supposed to give peace a chance, but I don't think it's working out too well. One reason why is because this fallen world is oftentimes ruled by wicked leaders who are less interested in securing peace for the people they lead. And the reason why is because they would rather acquire more power. That's right, they're ready to... Give away our peace for their own personal power. That being the case, we shouldn't be surprised by the fact that our history books are literally filled with stories of power-hungry megalomaniacs whose plan to conquer the world have kept many people from enjoying the state of tranquility, which results in true peace. And listen, I'd like to tell you that things are going to get better. I'd like to tell you that, but I don't think they will. You see, the last days will only get worse as the mystery of lawlessness continues to increase. And as we continue to hear more and more about the wars and the rumors of wars and the famines and the natural disasters and the plagues and the pestilences that Jesus promised would happen, we can still rejoice. And you're thinking, what? We can rejoice in all of these things? Well, no, 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 we can rejoice in knowing that there's coming a day when the King of Kings will come and he will establish his perfect peace, the peace that he promised to provide to those who trust in him. Now, as we consider this promise of peace, uh, what we're going to consider here in our text today, how the promise of peace included a sign that Jesus has fulfilled. The promise of peace also invokes a song from those who embrace that peace. And the promise of peace also involves the sight that the Lord gives to those who walk by faith with him. With this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting the people there in Jerusalem with a promise of peace. And as you make your way to the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the Lord Jesus was leading his disciples to Jerusalem because the time had come for Christ to be crucified for our sins. After spending some time there in the city of Jericho with some new followers, Jesus then returned to this journey as he headed to Jerusalem. And it's here in our text today where we find Luke. He's now presenting us with the events that led up to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 19. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 28, here Luke informs us that when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany that at the the mountain called all of it he sent two of his disciples saying go into the village opposite you where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat loose it and bring it here and if anyone asks you why are you loosing it thus you shall say to him because the lord has need of it so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Now here in these verses, we find Christ Jesus leaving Jericho. He's making his way to Jerusalem. But before entering the capital city of Israel, the Lord decided to spend some time in this small town of Bethphage. And it'll interest you to know that Bethphage was about half a mile away from the city wall's of Jerusalem, And what this means is that this little town was actually a Sabbath-day journey, according to the law of Moses. You know, on, on the Sabbath day, you could only travel a certain distance, and, and, and this was as far as a person could travel down this road from Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And it was there in Beth Bethpage, uh, Bethpage, I should say, where Jesus prepared for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and this all began with Grand Theft donkey. Not, not really. <laughs> not really. But, uh, but we know that this donkey was prepared for Jesus Christ. And we know this because uh, we find this prophecy in the book of Zechariah, which uh, presents us with this, with this information. It's in Zechariah chapter 9, where the Lord presents the people with this prophetic promise of peace. By declaring this, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now here in this messianic prophecy that we find in Zechariah chapter 9, you know we find the God of Israel here. He's pointing to this predetermined day when the promised Messiah would arrive and present the people of Israel with a promise of peace. And we must not fail to notice here that the Savior of Israel, the King of Kings, would arrive on a colt which is the foal of a donkey, or in other words, a baby donkey. And and with that being the case, it was crucial for Christ Jesus to stop there in Bethphage so that he could then acquire the colt that was in Bethany, which was necessary for the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. Now, in order to understand the reason for why Our Savior was supposed to enter Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. I I should take a moment to remind you that the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem was actually a symbolic announcement that Jesus is the King of Israel. That's what this is intended to communicate. And this is precisely the point that the prophet Zechariah was making when he informed the children of Israel that their king would come to them riding on the foal of a donkey. And according to Zechariah, the king who then enters Jerusalem riding a donkey would then begin to speak peace to the nations. In other words, after arriving there uh, on the donkey, the, the, the savior or the king of kings would then present the promise of peace. And as we continue to contemplate this messianic prophecy about this king riding a baby donkey, we should take a moment to consider the significance of this symbolism. It'll help you to know that when a king was planning to conquer a city, he would enter riding a war horse. And and that's exactly what we see Jesus doing when he returns. He's riding that white war horse as he returns to uh, set up his millennial kingdom. So the king entering a city riding a, a horse was communicating hostile takeover. In contrast to this, the king who entered a city riding a donkey Well, that king was actually assuring the people that he was coming in peace. And and that's exactly what we see here in our text today. We find the king of kings riding a baby donkey, not just a donkey, but a baby donkey into Jerusalem. And in this way, he was clearly communicating that he's a king coming with peaceful intentions first. Further proof of my point can be found in Isaiah chapter 9. There, the prophet Isaiah describes the ministry of the Messiah by declaring unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting creator, Prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, as we consider the details that we find here in this messianic prophecy, we must not fail to notice that it's our mighty God, our everlasting creator, who is also the Prince of Peace. And the Prince of Peace is the one who will eventually establish peace here on earth as he sets up his government from the throne of King David. And with this as his goal, it's no wonder then that the Lord Jesus signified this plan of peace by initially riding a baby donkey into Jerusalem. It's also important for us to realize that this promise of peace, well, it actually required a peace treaty, which was then written in blood, specifically the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. To prove my point, let's consider something that Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Rome. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. As you make your way to the fifth chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the unrepentant unbeliever is actually at war with God. You might not know that, but it's true. The unrepentant unbeliever is at war with God as a result, those who refuse to surrender and submit to the authority of our King Jesus, they make themselves to be the enemies of God. Thankfully for us, the Lord Jesus came to create a peace treaty through his substitutionary sacrifice, and with his own blood, he made a way for the enemies of God to raise the white flag. Let's consider how Paul put it here in Romans chapter 5. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here Paul declares, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that the Lord Jesus was actually sent to create a peace treaty between a holy God and sinful men. Jesus came to create this peace treaty, and with this as the plan, God the Father sent his only begotten Son to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that the enemies of God could repent and be reconciled through the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior. And now, those who trust in Jesus were no longer the enemies of God. Once being the enemies of God, when we trust in Jesus Christ, it's at that point when we are at peace with God, which is why Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who trust in Jesus Christ are no longer the enemies of God. No, instead, we are at peace with God because we've been justified by faith in the Prince of Peace. With all this in mind, we must not fail to grasp then the spiritual significance of the instructions that the Lord gave to the disciples that he sent to go and retrieve that baby donkey. Remember that that colt was actually a significant sign that symbolized the relational peace that the Prince of Peace came to provide for those who trust in him. Therefore, the promise of peace, well, it was not only revealed in the pages of Old Testament prophecy, but the promise of peace was then presented with the sign of our Savior entering Jerusalem on the back of a baby donkey." While it's true that the promise of peace includes this sign, which was fulfilled by Jesus when he rode that baby donkey to Jerusalem, the promise of peace also then invoked a song from those who were there to witness the triumphal entry of our Savior. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 19. Here we find Luke, he's recounting the day when the Lord Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem on the back of a baby donkey. Look with me there at Luke 19. We'll pick up our study beginning at verse 35. Here we learn that they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they said uh, they set Jesus on him and as he went many spread their clothes on the road then as he was drawing near the descent of the mount of olives the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now here in these verses, we find Luke's account of our Savior's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we commonly call Palm Sunday. The reason why we call it Palm Sunday, well it's it's because the people not only prepared the path before the Lord by placing their own clothes on the road, but in the account that we find in Matthew chapter 21, we also learn that the people began to cut down branches from the trees and they placed the foliage uh, on the road before the Lord. And and then in John chapter 12, we also learn that they were actually using the branches of palm trees, which is why we call this Palm Sunday. And not only did they prepare the way of the Lord, but, but it's there in verse 38 where we also learn that the people started singing. As they were preparing the road for the, the Lord to travel on, they began to sing this song which is found there in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, As we consider the lyrics of this song, we must not fail to realize that they were actually singing this song to Jesus. They were singing this song to Jesus, and and in this way, they were acknowledging the fact that Jesus is the king who has come in the name of the Lord. For the sake of clarity, we should notice that the title Lord, well, it's found in all caps. The title Lord found there in verse 38, it's found in all caps, and the reason for this Well, it's due to the fact that the Greek word translated Lord here was actually pointing back to the sacred name of God, which is actually found in the original lyrics of the song. To prove my point, let's consider those original lyrics, which uh, from the song that they sang there on Palm Sunday, hold your place here in the gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms and specifically Psalm 118. As you make your way to the 118th Psalm I should take a moment to point out that, you know, whenever we find the word Lord in all caps somewhere in the Bible, well, the all caps aspect of this is an indicator that alerts us to the fact that in the original language, we find the sacred name of God. In the original text, we find the sacred name of God. And and that's most certainly true of the song that we find here. In the 118th psalm. As a matter of fact, look with me there. Psalm 118, we'll begin reading at verse 24. Notice that every time the word Lord is used, it's found in all caps. Beginning there at verse 24, the psalmist declares, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. And he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Now here in the lyrics of this song, we find the psalmist, he's actually proclaiming the praises of the Lord who is God. He's, he's praising the Lord who is God. And just to be clear, and this might come as some surprise to you, but God's name is not God. I know that trips a lot of people up, you know, and someone will use God in some sort of irreverent way and, oh, don't use God's name in vain. Well, God's name isn't God. God. So, so if somebody uses you know, the, the word God in some irreverent sort of way, they must be talking about something, some other sort of false God, I'm guessing. But God's name isn't God. Here we see in, in Psalm 118, verse 27, God is the Lord. And, and that word Lord in all caps, it's actually based on four Hebrew consonants, that being Y H. W-H, which is what we call the Tetragrammaton, and, and it's typically translated either Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on the translation. Therefore, when the psalmist sang the praises of the one who came in the name of the Lord, he's actually informing us that the Messiah, the King, would be the one who would come in the name of the Lord, or in other words, in the character of Yahweh, Now, with all this context in in, in mind, uh, let's turn back to Luke chapter 19. Let's take another look at how they sang this this, uh, verse from Psalm 118. It's here in Luke 19, verse 38. Here they declare, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As we consider the way that the disciples chose this specific psalm to sing as Jesus was making his way into Jerusalem, well, it seems clear to me that they truly believe that Jesus is the king, that he's the one who came in the name of the Lord. Or in other words, they were worshiping the one who had come in the character of Yahweh. And not only were they convinced that Christ is our king, but they also sang this song of praise because they were certain that our Savior had come to bring heavenly peace here to the earth now one reason for their belief it's based on the the lyrics of yet another song which was sung on the day of jesus birth to prove my point let's consider luke's account of the day when a choir of angels appeared and announced our savior's birth so continue holding your place there in the 19th chapter of luke but let's turn back to the beginning of luke i'd like you to turn to luke chapter 2 See, it's here in the second chapter of Luke's gospel account where we learn about this day when a host of heavenly angels began to sing a song about our Savior. And it's here in the lyrics of this song where the angels actually reveal this promise of peace. If you would look with me there at Luke chapter 2, I want to begin reading there at verse 8. Here Luke informs us that there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Here in these verses, we find this angel of the Lord arriving and announcing the birth of our Savior Jesus to this group of shepherds. And after providing instructions for the shepherds who were out there in that field, that's when this choir of angels suddenly appeared. And according to Luke, they started singing this song about the peace of God which the Lord promises to provide to those who embrace the good will of God. And, and in light of this, we can see then that the promise of peace, it invokes songs of praise. The promise of peace invokes songs of praise. We see this at the, at the time of Jesus' birth as these angels are singing about the, the peace that our Savior brings. We see this at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ as the disciples begin to sing about the peace of this king. And and with this as our focus, let's make our way back to Luke 19. I want to take another look there, beginning at verse 39. Here Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. These Pharisees were attempting to silence the singing of those who were worshiping our Savior. And according to Jesus, if he silenced his disciples, the song would continue. The very stones would immediately start singing. Because the promise of peace invokes songs of praise. As we consider what Jesus said, please trust me when I tell you that when he tells us the stones would cry out, he wasn't referring to the rolling stones, thank the Lord. No, instead he was probably referring to the stones that the Israelites used to build the walls of the temple. He's making his way up the hill to the gates where he can enter in. And and so he's passing the stones that were used to create the temple. And it's possible that he was assuring the Pharisees that if the disciples stop singing his praises, then the temple itself would begin to praise the Prince of Peace. Pretty cool. Another possibility is that he's actually referring to the stones that made up the ground there in Jerusalem. Proof of my point can be found in Isaiah chapter 55. There the prophet Isaiah declares the mountains and the hills shall break forth in singing before you and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, if all the trees in a forest began to clap their hands and no one's there to hear it, was there a sound? I don't know. I don't know. Well, we can debate this later. But this is actually one of those verses in the Bible that reveals the way in which the the creation itself sings forth the praises of our Savior. So it may have been that Jesus was referring to the stones of the temple. Maybe he was just referring to the stones that made up the the earth there in Jerusalem. At the same time, it's also possible that the Lord was was referring to the stones that would uh, be placed atop the tombs there in Israel. The tombs in Israel would oftentimes have stones placed on top of them. And and if the Lord Jesus was referring to the stones on top of the tombs, then this might have been kind of a a veiled reference to the resurrection of those who would burst forth from the grave after his resurrection. We can't say for certain which stones he was talking about, except we know that it's not the rolling stones. But regardless of which stones Jesus was referring to, there's no doubt that the promise of peace always invokes songs of praise for those who trust in the Lord. We see uh, the evidence of this in Psalm 72. This is where we find King Solomon looking forward to the day when the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, would come and rule over the kingdom. It's actually here in Psalm 72 where King Solomon declares, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people, and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here in this song of praise, we find King Solomon. He's singing about the the peace that will fill the earth during the millennial kingdom of Christ Jesus. And, And according to King Solomon, the Prince of Peace will eventually establish an abundance of peace as he secures righteousness and justice throughout the entire earth. And as we look forward to this day when we'll finally enjoy this abundance of peace here on, on the earth, well, we too ought to be moved to sing songs of praise about our Prince of Peace. If you really grasp the promise of peace that Jesus has made and presented to us, then we ought to sing those songs of praise as we rejoice we rejoice. And so we see then that the promise of peace, it included the sign of a donkey, which Jesus fulfilled uh, during the the time of his triumphal entry. And then the promise of peace, which should also invoke songs of praise as we look forward to the second coming uh, uh, of our King. And, And then thirdly and finally, we should consider how the promise of peace, it's instilled into the hearts of those who receive the spiritual sight of our Savior. And with this as the focus, let's continue to consider Luke's account of Christ's triumphal entry. If you would look with me again here at Luke, Luke chapter 19, here we find the Lord Jesus. He's continuing to challenge those religious leaders who tried to convince him that he needed to silence his disciples. Let's continue to consider his response to those religious leaders. It's beginning there at verse 41. Luke writes, now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here in these verses, we we learn about the way that the Lord Jesus wept as he approached the city gate. Jesus wept over his people. And, And before we consider the reason for these tears, I should first point out that this isn't the only time that we find Jesus weeping. I'll remind you, it was in John chapter 11. There we learned about the day when Jesus wept there at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Not only that, but it's in Hebrews chapter 5. There we also learn about the day of our Savior's suffering. And according to Paul, Jesus offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears as he prayed to the one who could rescue him from death. So we see here that the humanity of Jesus, we find him shedding tears on at least three occasions including this day, the day of his triumphal entry, as he wept over the city. In order to understand why our Messiah was weeping here, let's take another look beginning at verse 41 here. Luke writes, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Here we find the Lord Jesus weeping, and, and the first reason for his tears well, it was due to the fact that the religious leaders of Israel had failed to recognize that this was their day. This was the day when the Prince of Peace would arrive, but, but they didn't know it. They didn't recognize this as their day. And, and, and rather than following all the prophetic clues, which, which can be found all throughout the Old Testament, which would bring them to this day, the religious leaders, they didn't understand it. They couldn't see it because their eyes had become spiritually blind. Jesus even referred to them as blind leaders of the blind. They couldn't see. They weren't able to see with their spiritual eyes that this was the day and this was the way that God was going to bring peace to his people. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Luke chapter 19. I'll draw your attention back to verse 42. Here the Lord Jesus declares, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes... From this we can see that the religious leaders of Israel who missed the day of their visitation, they ended up then being further blinded not only by their willful ignorance but by the fact that God now is going to hide information from them while telling them exactly what's going to happen. But we have to understand first of all that they were blinded because of the willful ignorance that led them to ignore all of the Old Testament prophecies which clearly pointed to the day when the Prince of Peace was predetermined to arrive. I'm, of course, referring to the prophecy that the angel Gabriel presents in Daniel chapter 9. There were provided with a very precise calculation of when the Messiah would finally arrive and present himself as king. And when you engage in a precise calculation of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, it places you right here at the day of their visitation. They should have known but they were blinded by their own willful ignorance. You see, they had an agenda. They weren't studying the scriptures because they wanted to know their savior. They weren't reading the Bible so that they could understand God's plan. No, they had an agenda and they took their agenda and they tried to force it onto the Old Testament texts so that they could continue to gain power over the people of Israel. And as a result... They were blind. Now, in order to further grasp the spiritual blindness that stemmed from their willful ignorance, we should take a moment to consider something that Paul wrote to the Christians who were there in Corinth. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As you make your way to the third chapter of 2 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to remind you about that veil that Moses would wear after spending time In the presence of the Lord, I should first remind you, you know, that, uh, when, when the Lord wanted to meet with the people there on Mount Sinai, the, the, the people said, no, 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 Moses, you go up, you go talk to God for us. We're scared we don't want to go up there. You go up there for us. So Moses would go up there and, and meet with God. And, and then after descending, you know, his face would be glowing with the, with the Holy Chicano glory of God. And, uh, And they didn't like that either. They didn't want to see that that glory emanating from his face. And so they wanted him to cover his cranium with a veil. Yeah, they, they wanted him to wear a veil so that they didn't look upon the glory of God. And so when Moses presented the people with the law of God, it was through a veil. Paul then takes this story and he's already kind of uh, talked about the story here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and then he goes on to present them with a parallel to, in, in order to help them to understand the blindness that was still occurring there in Israel. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look with me there, beginning at verse 14. There we learn that their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Here in these verses, we find Paul describing the way in which this veil, the veil of Moses, was still blinding the spiritual eyes of those who were rejecting their Redeemer. And while it's true that this veil can be easily removed, the veil is removed when a person places their faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's not that the children of Israel can't remove the veil, it's that those who reject Jesus Christ won't remove the veil. They choose to remain blinded, spiritually speaking. And as they study the law of Moses, well, until they embrace our Savior Jesus, their study of Moses is still veiled. And they can't see the meaning of the prophetic promises that that point to the peace of God. Nor can they see the promise of destruction for those who reject Jesus. To further grasp my point, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 19. Let's consider what Christ Jesus said next. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 43. Here Jesus declares, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side. And level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you and you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here in these verses we find the Lord Jesus, he's prophetically pointing to the day when Roman soldiers would surround the city of Jerusalem and then level everything, including the temple This prophecy was actually fulfilled in 70 AD after a military commander named Titus besieged and conquered the city of Jerusalem. Jesus told them exactly what was going to happen and they still couldn't see it. Jesus put it to them in plain simple terms and they couldn't hear it. And so they were taken off guard as the Romans prepared to conquer Jerusalem the city that they were already occupying. Now, as we consider this leveling of the city of Jerusalem, I want to take a moment to point out that the, the Hebrew word Jerusalem literally means teaching of peace. Teaching of peace. And, and Jerusalem has oftentimes been called the city of peace, the, the city of Salem or the city of Shalom. The city of peace. Now I don't know if you've studied much history around Jerusalem, but I think that we could probably add up the amount of days that there's been peace in Jerusalem on on maybe two hands. Not much peace in the city of peace. Not much peace being taught in the, the city called the teaching of peace. Why? Because by and large they've rejected the prince of peace. And while it's true that, you know, the Romans came in and leveled Jerusalem to the ground, you know, it's also true that those at that point in time who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ still had peace in their hearts. Because you see, peace isn't about what's happening in the world. Peace is about our relationship with the Prince of Peace. I'll prove my point. It's actually found in Isaiah chapter 26. There the prophet Isaiah declares you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. According to the prophet Isaiah, those who will fix their focus on the Lord will enjoy the perfect peace that's provided to those who trust in him. And while this might be hard to believe, especially as we consider all of the issues happening in the world around us, listen, I can assure you that this promise of peace is enjoyed by those who will simply set their spiritual sights on our Savior. And yeah, this is true regardless of the troubles happening here in the world all around us. To further prove my point, I want to consider the promise of peace that the Lord Jesus made to those who trust in him. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's turn in our Bibles now to John chapter 14. As you make your way to the 14th chapter of John's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that the perfect peace of the Lord can be enjoyed, even in troublesome times. Even as we watch the nations being set up for the rise of the Antichrist, we can still be at peace. Even as we watch our economy being destroyed right before our very eyes, even as we watch all the troubles and tribulations happening all around us, we can still be at peace. Even though the Romans are surrounding us and and setting up an embankment against us and getting ready to level us, we can still have perfect peace. Peace. Is simply focus on the Prince of Peace. I want to consider how Jesus puts it here in John chapter 14. Look with me there at verse 27. Here the Lord Jesus declares, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. In other words, I'm not giving you that fake peace that John Lennon sang about that pseudo peace that isn't real peace. No. He says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the father for my father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's assuring the hearts of his disciples, and he did this by helping them to understand that we can actually enjoy perfect peace today, even in troublesome times, and the reason why is because he's going away to the Father and he's coming back to us. Think about that for a moment. The Lord Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you some peace. Here's, Here's some peace for you. I'm going away. What? Don't go away. And he says, no, you should rejoice in this. Why? Well, because Jesus has to ascend into heaven, receive his kingly crown, and then return to establish his millennial kingdom. And he says, when you see it, then you can believe. In other words, he was saying, hey, when you see my ascension into heaven, then you'll know that I'm also coming back. And in this, you can have peace. We can have peace even uh, when the whole world is falling apart. We can still be at peace by simply focusing in on, on the prophetic word of God by which we understand that there's coming a day when Christ Jesus will return and establish peace here on earth for a thousand years. To prove my point, I would direct your attention to Revelation chapter 21, where we get a small glimpse into the kingdom of Christ, and it's in Revelation 21, verse 1, where John writes, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there also was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new he said to me, right, for these words are true and faithful. Christian, listen, regardless of the trials and the troubles that we face today, regardless of the things happening here in this world, we can still enjoy the peace of mind that comes from knowing that Christ the King, the one who wept over the city of Jerusalem as he entered in, is going to come back and wipe away every tear. And during his millennial reign, there won't be anything that can rob us of our perfect peace that God has promised to those who trust in him. We're not going to die. We're not going to get sick. There's not going to be any pain. Nothing that's going to take our peace away from us. And listen, if you're lacking peace in your life today, I encourage you, spend more time studying the second coming of Jesus Christ Learn more about his millennial kingdom. Study the scriptures about these things so that you can take great comfort in knowing that Jesus is coming back and between now and then, he's preparing a place for us so that we can dwell in perfect peace. And you might be thinking, well, who knows how long that's going to be. I'm struggling today. I'm lacking peace today. Well, hey, there's a plan here. You can have perfect peace today according to the promise that the Lord has made to us. This is precisely the point that Paul is making in Philippians chapter 4. There he declares, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. As we consider the encouragement that Paul was presenting here, it's important to realize that those things that fill our minds with anxious thoughts, they will always keep us from the promise of perfect peace. Those things that create anxiety in our minds will always rob us of the peace of God. And yet you must understand, Christian, that if you're filled with anxiety, that's your choice. You chose that you decided to dwell on that thing that that fills your heart with anxiety because you don't have to. You're encouraged not to. Set your sight on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be anxious for nothing. And Christians are like, well, I don't understand how that works, you know? Yeah, it's the peace that surpasses all understanding. You weren't asked to figure this out. You're asked to believe it and apply it. Paul tells us to take those anxieties, turn them into prayerful moments where we bring those anxieties to the Lord and say, here God, these are your problems. I'm going to go back to what I was doing now. Thank you. These are God's problems. Let him deal with it. We have to spend less time worrying and more time praying to the Lord. And as we do, we'll begin to see how the trials and the troubles, they're really just opportunities for growth. They're really just opportunities to develop perseverance so that we can experience the, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And as we bring every anxious thought before the Lord and leave it at his feet, the Prince of Peace then turns around and protects our hearts and our minds with the light of his truth as he helps us to see his plan for our lives. And in this, we can have perfect peace today, regardless of what's happening in the world. As we begin to wrap up this study, it's my hope that we might all remember that the Lord has promised to provide perfect peace to those who who simply trust in him. This promise of peace initially included this interesting sign that, that revealed the arrival of the Prince of Peace. And, and as we've seen here in our text today, this significant sign was fulfilled on the day when Christ Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of that baby donkey. The sign has been fulfilled. This ought to invoke a song of praise because the promise of peace always invokes that song of praise as as people and even angels proclaim the praises of our Messiah who was sent to establish a peace treaty so that sinners might receive the peace that comes from salvation. And finally, this promise of peace is instilled in the hearts of those who receive the spiritual sight of our Savior who has promised to lead us by the light of his truth so that we can live in his peace. I realize we live in a fallen world and I know for a fact that things are just getting worse. I'm sure we all have many troubles and trials, even tribulations that lie before us. We're even possibly dreading going back to work tomorrow knowing that there's just more issues. Some of us are even troubled with going home today knowing that it's just a house of problems. And yet I would remind you that the Lord has promised to provide us with the peace which surpasses all understanding. Don't try to figure it out. Just fix your focus on on Jesus. And walk by faith with him. It's for this reason that I always encourage every Christian, just fix your focus on the Prince of Peace who came to provide us with his perfect peace. Let's pray.